Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Yeah, I'm going to do as little on oil and gas pricing as I could get away with oil is uh, very heavily propagated. So at the current price at 120, you want to sell oil for delivery three or four years, you're at 75. What that means is that if you're an oil company, you really can't afford to have any debt because when you have debt, you have to do hedging. This is going to do quite a lot to keep spending you know, for new oil production in the U.S. under control despite the high prices. Natural gas, pretty much the same. You currently you get eight and a half, nine dollars, and in three or four years you get three fifty. So when you can't borrow money, and you're committed to a dividend and stock repurchase and whatnot, the the supply of gas and oil in the United States will be restrained. The price of gasoline, five dollars is a problem for anyone who holds political office because it's, you know, a huge impact on individuals, on businesses, and it's not just oil production. About $3 of that $5 price is oil production. There's some federal and state taxes in there, but there's very high refining margin, what's called the crack spread, you know, so crack spreads have been as high as $40, $50, and they're normally $15 or $20. So now there is a shortage of refining capacity worldwide. Some of this has to do with the invasion of Ukraine, but a lot of it is just, you know, reluctance to spend money on developing new capacity when you have so much backwardation because products are backwardated too. So if you can't count, on what you're going to get for your oil, oil products before five years from now, how can you spend the digital money on a refinery? So that's going to continue. I would say refining capacity is going to continue to be restrained. When the Republicans talk about loss of energy independence, pre-COVID, our oil production peaked at about 13 million barrels a day, and it got as low as 11. And now it's down back to around just under 12. I mean, it'll creep up a bit. So not like a million barrels a day or a million two means we've lost energy independence. I think the problem for the Democrats from a political point of view is to include the progressive side of the party. You've got to say, well, we need more supply of oil now. But we don't want it five years time. We want to phase down oil. That's what half or more of the Democratic elected officials and voters and whatnot believe because of climate. Problem we have that they have, and they're going to have difficulty, I think, in the midterms or in 2024 electing the next president, is that if you go back to George W. Bush or 
or George W. Bush or Obama or, for that matter, Trump, the thinking was all of the above. In other words, sure, if solar is cheaper, let's build solar. Wind is cheaper, let's build wind. Conservation is very important. But the progressive side of the Democratic Party has moved enough, so that's not enough. They, they want to do net zero by 2030 or 2040 or whatnot. And so all the above doesn't work anymore. Well, with all the above not working, it means $5 gasoline. It means your, your bill to heat a house or run air conditioning, it's going to be twice as high. Because power prices go up with gas. Gas was two fifty or $3, and now it's $8. It's going to kind of stay there your power prices are going to be up a lot. And it's not only hurt, you know, the individual homeowners and whatnot, uh, it hurts industry. So I think that the Democrats, the only answer is pivot back to all the above, but I don't think you can win a democratic primary with all the above. If you have a big slice of progressive voters who say that climate change is one of the two or three big problems we face uh, unless you commit yourself to using a lot less fossil fuel, you know, you're not going to get our folks a primary. So now remember when we invest, we invest commercially. It's not politics, but politics does have an impact on how all these things work. The, the political impact here, I think, is that fossil fuel prices are liable to stay higher for longer because of the need for the Democratic Party to continue to, you know, move over towards more progressive view of, of how energy should be used and supplied and whatnot. On capital markets, not appear as though Fed is going to get lucky. I mean, they're unlucky. They got out there and said inflation was mandatory. They look like dirt. Yeah. But it looks to me like there's a chance they'll get lucky. And by lucky, I mean is pace of inflation will gradually slow so that by the time they get to August or September, you know, ahead of the November election for the midterms, the PCE, which is what the Fed uses to measure inflation as compared to the consumer price index, the wholesale price index, which was 6% last time they reported, I think there's a chance well, a 50 50 chance will get down to three and a half or four percent. So it will appear to be on its way back to two percent. And remember, the Fed, all the way from the Great Recession in 08, was struggling to get the PCE to go up two percent a year. And it spent a fair amount of time going up one and a half percent or one and a quarter percent. So it says, which has a lot of carryover governors, to be more than comfortable, I think, with the Three percent, three and a half percent PCE inflation or, or index. You know, everyone talks hard landing, soft landing, whatnot. You'll still have pretty high energy costs, but of course, the indexes, what, what, whichever you're measuring, are measuring year to year or month to month. So, if you already have pretty elevated oil prices and gasoline prices and natural gas prices and power prices. I don't think they're going to increase too much from here. So, you know, as I say, the fall may start to make it look calmer and, and better and whatnot. With that, Mike and I want to go through 
at least two things with the remaining time, and we have a full 20 minutes. We talked about Tesla last week and the week before, and we're not advocating going out and owning Tesla shares at this valuation. But what we are saying is that when we looked at who is competent with batteries, great deal of money, billions and billions of dollars that's drawn into the venture capital industry trying to figure out, make something other than liquid batteries. So far, all that money has been lost. Nothing comes close to lithium batteries. Lithium batteries, of course, for weight for cars are harder to find some substitute. But to tell you the truth, in, in commercial scale batteries to back up solar or back up the grid, lithium is got, you know, like a 95% market share and it looks as though it's going to continue to have that market share. So initially, and, and there was no patent for lithium battery. So originally, the most competent company doing it was Panasonic, the Japanese company. And that Tesla factory is really in, in Nevada, wherever it is, to make the battery to go to the Tesla cars, if, you know, which are manufactured in California in a factory that used to be owned by GM, a joint venture, GM and Toyota. Those, those batteries, that's a Panasonic factory. That's not Tesla factory. At the time, Tesla didn't have enough money to do a factory. And so Panasonic was clearly in the lead. And that LG Chem, a Korean company, became competitive. And you'll remember, I've mentioned on the Wednesday call, Chevrolet had a less expensive electric car. I think it was called a Bolt. Uh, they had like a 250,000 car recall because the batteries made by LG Camp were defective and it couldn't charge them up fully without having the possibility of having, a, having them overheat. Well, LG Camp has been supplying the two entities as near as we can see. And Mike spent a lot more time on this than I have or THTL, a uh, Chinese company, and BYD, another Chinese company. When the people we back are putting in commercial sale utilities, they almost always, the batteries are coming from CATL or BYD, rather than LG Chem or Panasonic. Uh, and Tesla probably has done more to figure out how to buy batteries, how to include batteries in their cars, You'll remember that they also merged in, uh, and, and when you look at a Tesla uh, 10K or 10Q or Spencer presentation, they actually make batteries for rooftop, you know, to go with rooftop solar. They know more about engineering batteries and doing batteries, and then they become very competent at actually making cars. And so the two of us have decided that while we think Tesla's over value, and, but if we're, if we think that this is a trend in our economy towards battery cars, towards the grid needing more batteries, to just ignore Tesla and not spend time on it is just wrong-headed. So we are spending time on Tesla. And I have the thesis that I'm going to lay out and then Mike's going to add to it and, and point out where I have looking at it in over, over simplified way. Tesla, if you look at the current financials, they have no debt. If you compare Tesla to GM or Ford, Tesla's in better shape financially. 
said, gee, I'm a foreigner. They do have cash flow. I reckon that their cash flow, judged from last year and looking at the first quarter of this year, for the coming years, they will have free cash flow, real cash flow, not EBITDA, but EBITDA lets CapEx around 10 or $15 million. The, uh, in the first quarter, they had their factory in California running, Shanghai kind of up. Uh, their factory in Texas wasn't operational yet. Their factory in Germany wasn't operational yet. If you make some assumptions about how many cars they can produce in Texas, in in uh, Germany, you know, it's conceivable that you get a reasonable estimate of their free cash flow into the 20, maybe more. Well, where would a reasonable valuation be? Well, there are about a billion shares outstanding. There's no debt. At, at, at $400, that would be $400 billion. A 5% free cash yield on $400 billion would be $20 billion. I think $20 billion is in sight. And uh, I've kind of monopolized. I've now gone for a full 15 minutes or 16 minutes. Mike's going to add some more commentary on my introduction of how to think about Tesla. And if we have some time at the end, we want to talk about Amazon. But let's spend the next five or 10 minutes on Tesla, mostly for Mike. So over to you, Mike. Okay, so I, I started my analysis looking at capacity. So the California Fremont factory has the capacity to do half a million Model 3 or Model Y, and then another 100,000 Model X. Shanghai, they don't, there's no stated number, but it, it seemed to be greater than 450,000 units. They mounted some capital improvements nearly in the last year that increased the workforce there by 26%. So I'm handicapping Shanghai as a cap capacity of about 600,000 units. Nobody really knows what capacity of Berlin and Texas uh, are going to be, but it's probably relatively safe to assume that they're both at least 600,000 each for the Model Y. So you can kind of see where you get to two and a half to three million unit capacity per year that, that some analysts are saying on a run rate basis it's pretty likely that uh, they get that two million units per year so then i said okay well what kind of cash flow would they be doing with two million units so for 2021 they did 44 billion in automotive revenue on approximately a million units and that would get you to an average price a car and $44,000. So let's just extrapolate that to 2 million units. So that would get you $88 billion in automotive revenue. Gross margins are an interesting topic because from what we can tell, and again, that's mostly based on other people's work, the California factory has about a 20% gross margin. The same high factory, on the other hand, has about a 40% gross margin. And no one knows where the gross margins are going to come in for Berlin and Texas. However, it's probably safe to assume that Berlin and Texas will both be better margin than California, but probably not as good margin as Shanghai. Given that, I assume the automotive gross margin will be 30% at 2 million units. 
Um, so 30% of the $88 billion revenue is through $26.4 billion in gross margin. If you remember, um, or you've been following the last few weeks, Musk has stated pretty explicitly that they're going to keep headcount for non-production workers flat. So you may be able to say that the OPEX is going to stay about the same. So that's a Currently about $2 billion a quarter, so $8 billion a year. That gets you to, um, so we had $26.4 billion gross margin, let the eight gets you to about $18 billion profit. And you know, we're not on cash flow, but just looking at handicapping that number, you can see how you're getting close to that $20 billion pretty quickly with some rough assumptions and we're not even adding in the, the other parts of the business. So, you know, the number I came up with was you could easily get to that $20 billion number with two units. Yeah, let me just speak to that 5% measure. Obviously, we got a back in the 700, not 400. It seems to me that Fair value or a value where you want to own and continue to is a business that generates free cash flow of 5% on its debt plus equity. Now, there's no debt, so it's just equity. That would get you to a 400 billion valuation. Now, would all businesses trade a 5% free cash yield? No. No, businesses that don't grow and are flat, but are able to buy in shares or do other things to, to enhance the rate of return, probably should trade at a 10 or 12% free cash yield. What's the difference between a 10 or 12% free cash yield and a 5% free cash yield? Hard to imagine that Tesla producing 2 million cars in four different locations isn't going to grow it's free cash flow at least 10% a year. No, it's oversimplification, but 5% free cash yield plus 10% growth is 15% return a year. 15% doubles your money in five years. What are the competitive threats? Followers of Buffett, Munger, and Berkshire talk about both. And so I like to avoid talking about votes. It's just a, a word that's used too much. But let's talk about competitive threats. Is GM or Ford or Volkswagen or Toyota, are they competitive threats? Well, of course, they're all going to make electric cars. But the entity that's been making them longest, and remember, half of a car is the battery. Half the cost of the car is the battery. Nobody has experience like Tesla does with batteries. How to think that the cash flow, free cash flow at Tesla is going to go up at least 10% a year for several years, for a decade or more. I think that's a pretty fair bet. Now, we're in the six or seven minutes left over. We're going to switch over to Amazon. And Amazon never gets cheap enough to be a 5% free cash yield. With Amazon, you're lucky 
to get it cheap enough to be at two or three percent free cash yield. But Amazon, because of its position in in e-commerce and its logistics, and because of Amazon Web Services, is uh, in an awfully strong position as well. And in areas where, I mean, we know there's going to be more battery cars. We know that there's going to be that e I think we know that e-commerce is going to take a higher percentage of retail sales, keeping in mind in a developed country like the United States, that retail sales, you know, are 70% of the GFP. As far as Amazon Web Services goes, they have a clear lead in, uh, in putting in servers, renting their server space or what is called cloud computing. Now, just like Tesla will have Ford, GM, Volkswagen, Toyota, Hyundai, all making electric cars. Uh, there are other people providing cloud services. Uh, the second largest is Microsoft with Azure. And then Google's in there and, and Oracle's trying too. Amazon Web Services is awfully well positioned. As far as the e-commerce part of the business, you know, largest retailer in the world and in the United States with Walmart. Walmart has a, a you know, a, a strong effort to do e-commerce. So do other entities that are in the retail business. Now, if you wait for Amazon to get to a 5% for cash deal, you never buy it. So one of the things that interesting with these two companies that, and you know, we're going to run out of time today, but I promise, or I think I can promise and let something intervene, some other macro bank intervene. We'll continue with this comparison next Wednesday, maybe the Wednesday after that. Is it the case that for Tesla is strong enough? In other words, if, if, if is the thing that has made Amazon such a terrific investment, it's all reason because Amazon was was absolutely flat in 21. It didn't go up at all. And this year it's off 30%. So, but if you take it to it, say it's pre-pandemic level or at the end of 2020, the reason it compounded so much is it, it free cash flow wasn't going up 10% a year, it's going up 15 or 20% a year. And is it the case that, that the cloud part of Amazon will, you know, have a competitive threat from Microsoft or Google. Well, they'll have competition, but they're so far along. I mean, no one does logistics like Walmart, except for Amazon. I mean, Amazon's capability, running warehouses, doing flying things around with planes, trucks and whatnot, it's just totally unrivaled. Mike and I talked about this yesterday, early in the morning in California time anyway, and then again this morning, but wanted Mike and his partner, Jason, have been spending a lot of time on Amazon and in the remaining four or five minutes. So just turn it back to Mike to comment on those constituent parts of Amazon, e-commerce and cloud. The point you made about Amazon and AWS being actually sort of similar to Tesla is really actually kind of profound. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I generally think of Amazon AWS as being maybe four or five years ahead of the other cloud providers. And in, to, to the layman, there's no 
that's not inherently obvious. But if you talk to software developer who uses these tools on a day-to-day basis, they will explain to you very quickly that what Amazon provides is much more advanced than what the others provide. It's sort of the same for Tesla, right? Because yes, the Tesla, you can get in it and drive it and it'll take you from point A to point B. But the businesses are very different. The margins are very different. You know, you look at every other major automaker, they have under 20% from margins, except for Ferrari. I think they're more like 50%. Tesla currently at 27% and probably going higher. It's a very different business. But to tie back to Amazon, the AWS product is the largest, fastest growing business and most profitable, large, fast growing business out there. It's got a, a 30% operating margin. Standalone, that would probably be worth a trillion dollars, maybe. I did, I did a, a little analysis on that track kind of thing. What would, how would it price relative to the other cloud companies? And I kind of came up with a range of like 700 billion to a trillion. So yeah, imagine if Amazon split that off, that's where it would be. So then, then you're left with somewhere between half a trillion dollars to sign to whatever's left of Amazon. And their logistics network is the best in the world. I challenge you to find someone else that can get you something as fast as Amazon. It, it, it's really quite impressive. I, I get delivery times regularly to my house of four hours. I think that Amazon hasn't fully monetized a lot of this infrastructure they've built out. And that's sort of the MLO Amazon. They, they build something, they prove that it really works, and then they they monetize it. Got AWS was built for internal purposes, and eventually they started selling the service that they built from themselves to others. We know that Amazon's going to do some of this with Shopify, some of the other e-commerce sites, because nobody's got the 3PL capabilities that Amazon has. So I think that Amazon's super interesting state. The valuation is going to be a little bit tough because there, there are some negative macro trends that are going to affect the consumer retail spending. It'll probably affect Amazon less than others, but it's still going to affect Amazon. That being said, maybe it just gets me up for by, by what's happening with AWS. Yeah, we think Tesla, we think one of the interesting things, Mike and I, and we'll get into this more next Wednesday, Mike and I think that both Tesla and Amazon are going to have challenging quarters, the quarter we're in, the June quarter. Tesla because of lockdowns in China, so we don't think the Shanghai plant will contribute too much. And Amazon, because same kinds of things that affected Target two days ago, consumers having to spend less on discretionary items because of quality bills and gasoline bills. And, you know, there's a large portion of uh, the 310 million of us who still have plenty of money left over after paying for uh, gasoline and our utility bills. But, you know, the stock market is off 20 or 25%. So you definitely get kind of a net worth account, even though it's on paper, people, ah, including, including Mike and myself, feel, you know, less wealthy and less, less willing to do discretionary spending. So Amazon may have a weak quarter and Tesla may have a weak quarter. Question is, 
how much further down will the stocks come now? Amazon's been split 20 for one. So rather than seeing a $2,200 stock, it's $120, $115 stock. This, this is an opportunity. And we won't dwell on Tesla and Amazon to the exclusion of other things like the chip companies and, and the software companies were covered. But I, I think you can expect next Wednesday we'll still be going on about uh, Tesla and Amazon. Maybe, maybe to make a contrast, We'll also have kind of an update on tips next week, too. And with that, everyone, uh, be well, stay healthy, and we'll talk next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.